You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years of This is Emeritus Rex with Ruven Yoshua Pukka, the rabbi of Beth Israel Beth Aaron, Colt St. Luke, the suburb of that beautiful French-tinged city, Montreal. Rabbi Pupkin, the anniversary of what some people say is the start of the Holocaust, which is Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. Um, and there have been lectures to mark the beginning of, of, of the Holocaust. Uh, I think both of us saw a, a headline saying that perhaps Kristallnacht is a misnomer. And, 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 and you know that that's true, because it's not just that they... <laughs> the pogrom was breaking glass. I mean, that was the most obvious thing. But there was rape. There was murder. There was dragging people out. Um, it's it's almost like you know shuls were vandalized and burned. No, it was it was a lot worse than that. This was um, a, a terrible, terrible uh, excess. And, and and the police, of course, allowing the mobs and actually encouraging them. Uh, and in many ways, it definitely was just a, a, a breaking loose of that horror that they knew was really coming. I mean, that many people already predicted was coming with the rise of Hitler to power and the changes that already had happened uh, in Germany. Um, we talk about it, uh, but do we need to talk about it really in the same way? And, and maybe we should stop talking about it the way we, we have in the past, um, especially as the survivors have, in most part, gone to their just reward. Um, and here we are, in, in many ways, still not advanced in terms of the way we speak about the Holocaust. Uh, any of us were asked to give a course on the Holocaust. You know, what would be the first words out of our mouth? Uh, how would you begin the story? I mean, where, at what point would you begin the story? Would you start with Kristallnacht? I don't think so. It would certainly be a significant feature towards the beginning of the course. But I think all of, most of us would begin either with, um, I mean, some of us might begin with, you know, uh, the long history of Christian anti-Semitism uh, that creates a fertile ground for, for, for hatred in the 20th uh, century. Yeah. Uh, or, or you would start with the defeat of the Germans in World War One and the, and the stab in the back myth. Yeah, I, I, I think I would have started with the rise of nationalism in Europe and right. anti-Semitism that began... Uh, as a movement in the 19th century, the Dreyfus Affair and things like that. I guess the racial theories you might, you might want to talk about. There's a lot of starting points. You know, some might just start September 1st, 1939, but, you know, in terms of the actual, uh, you know, uh, origins of the mass, mass uh, mechanized killing. But, uh, you know, Chris Donas is certainly a huge event on the path towards the destruction of European jury. Uh, it takes place uh, after... Um, uh, years of the uh, Nuremberg laws being implemented, which uh, progressively limit uh, Jewish life uh, in Germany. Um, the pretext, as, as everyone uh, I'm sure knows, was the assassination that took place in Paris. Uh, Herschel Grinspan, a 17-year-old Jewish kid in Paris, uh, assassinated a, uh, a German diplomat, uh, Ernest von Rath. Ernest von Rath, and he did that because... Uh, his parents were being pushed out of uh, out of Germany as you know whatever for citizenship whatever there's that you know the the move in the 30s to expel 
the refugees who had come from other places. Right, because in between the world wars, the, the devastation that World War I wrought caused so many Jews from Poland and, and other parts of Eastern Europe right. to relocate in places where they could scratch out some sort of existence. Right. So, so Jews lost their life in their homes then. But again, so so the kid walks in, in, in into the German uh, uh, embassy in Paris, I believe it was, and kills Ernst von Rath. And this is used as a pretext for mass violence across Germany and Austria. Uh, I mean, you know, the, you know, I don't know. If we have to go through the. What's also interesting to look at is how the event was covered elsewhere. I mean, it was understood to be a significant event. It's on the front page of the New York Times the next morning. Um, People knew what was going on, and it was uh, widely widely condemned. But um, but you know, uh, you know, we you know uh, you know the big wonder, the wonder of it all is how people, except for Winston Churchill and a few others, were so oblivious to the threat of um, uh, of the rise of Nazism. You know, you read, you know, for instance, Stefan Zweig ultimately. Uh, there was an obliviousness and an exhaustion from World War One, and uh, exhaustion uh, from World War One leads to passivity in the face of uh, of the rising threat. I mean, the, the threat wasn't obscure. I mean, it was you know the Nuremberg Laws, you had Kristallnacht. It wasn't obscure, and, 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 sure. you know, and I, I think and I think some of it, I, it was. I, I think there was another element here, which was the, um, the idea that a lot of Brits had. That a strong Germany will mean a stronger Europe, a stronger economy. Uh, as you know, as ugly as Hitler was to them, you know, they saw it more as you know the European uh, a, stre- a streak of European barbarism, but which can be marshaled into a way to bring a strong uh, economic giant that would somehow um, bring back uh, a lot of industry. And this would be, you know, steps in the modern world. I think that was part of what, uh, I think there are a lot of elements of the story. And and the other elements of the story are, you know, the, uh, that, you know, the Nazism had sympathizers elsewhere. They did. They had sympathizers in America. Of course. And in in, in Britain and in, and, and, uh, in America and, and throughout. And part of it was, you know, based on the anti-Semitic streaks that was very rampant in, in England and throughout the world, that, uh, you know, and this way they could make common cause. I, I guess here's here's really where I want to stop you. Um, we are obviously of a different generation, and our responsibility is what do we teach and what do we promote? There's such a, a glut of information, and there's just 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 enough time to get it done in let's say a public school uh, type of framework, the 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 amount of detail that's necessary makes it almost impossible to go through it the old way because there's so much the world. There's other stuff that's happened since then, right? In other words, we have to you have to make a a a reasoned decision. What is it that you're going to be able to give over? To elementary school students and high school students, All right, I, I would just, I would stop you there. Okay, let's uh, let's go through this slowly, but uh, and with some. Okay, first of all, I don't believe, and I know people will yell at me. I don't believe anybody in elementary school needs to hear about the Holocaust. And when I say that, anyone, I mean Jewish kids also. I, I don't believe that. I believe Jewish children should be raised 
uh, being taught the beauty of Jewish life, the beauty of Jewish text study. And when they hit the high school years, uh, in their last couple of years of high school, that's when I would start talking about the Holocaust. Obviously, they've all heard about it if they're in a Jewish school before that. But education about the Holocaust, I don't think needs to begin. I don't think you need to have, uh, you know, kids uh, in third or fourth grade le- le- learning uh, the, the horrors. I, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's also in some ways damaging. I think it's can be scary to kids and they don't understand it. And I think not only just scary, but it, it gives them a jaundiced view of Jewish life, possibly. I don't think it's a great idea. I think we should wait. Now, as a relation to non-Jewish kids, I, I am very wary. In other words, if somebody gets up in a room and says, there's a rise of anti-Semitism, we have to increase education. And one of that, and one element of that is significant element that has to be Holocaust education, right? And let's teach about the Holocaust in high schools. Okay, first of all, would you trust the teachers in high school to teach the Holocaust? Do you know how much training you need in order to teach the Holocaust? And do you know how impossible that is? I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand why we would trust them to teach the Holocaust. I, I, I don't get it. And I know this is heresy, but I don't know why we would trust them either. Um, n- number two. So let, let me respond to that, uh, because I took some teacher trainings uh, for the state of New Jersey and other places. And as you know, there are um, outfits, I think Confronting History is one of them. I forgot exactly all their names. And they they have produced textbooks um, uh, in order to be handed out uh, right. at all these public schools. And Again, obviously, a textbook is not the teacher. The teacher itself has, has to know what to choose and what to zero in on. But a lot of that work of the expertise was really done by others who then, and, and, and I want, let me go a little bit further on this. The, the courses that I took in order to be able to teach the Holocaust, they made sure to expand it beyond the actual events from... 1938 to 1945. They actually made sure to connect it to other sorts of uh, other sorts of massacres, killings, and in general, uh, wedding it to the civil rights movement and other things like that. So there, there, there was. You're right. A teacher who's just starting out, fresh faced, could familiarize themselves with that material and possibly um, using that as a crutch, the same way a Rebbe can use an art scroll Gemara. There is a way to to at least manage to push through it and to to create some sort of decent conversation about it. Again, I'm skeptical. I, why do we take it for granted that if a young person studies the Holocaust, they'll be more sympathetic to Jews in 2021? Why do we take that for granted? And we even believe, or many do, that if you teach Holocaust, they'll be more sympathetic to the state of Israel, when in fact, there's no data to confirm that in any way at all. There's no data on this. What we do know is if you talk to docents at Holocaust museums who deal with you know, high school and university groups that come and see the, see the, see the museum, the, one of the questions they most frequently get is, well, if you've experienced this, how do you behave in the way you do towards the Palestinians? So why do we assume that, in other words, when, I, when we were in high school, right? You remember those glory days in high school? So we were in high school and people taught us about something that had happened 80 years ago in Italy, right? Does that, does that change how you looked at an Italian that you met in the street in 1974? No, 
It has no impact. Why do we believe that the study of the Holocaust impacts how people view Jews in 2021 or the state of Israel in 2020? I agree with you 100%. In fact, I think that what it does is there's another aspect here, which is especially even in the state of New Jersey, where it was mandated in all public schools. It might have gotten Menendez elected by the Jewish power brokers, whoever it was, but I think, look, both of us know, you go back to those glory days, we hated so much of our uh, high school experience, what we were forced to do. When you you force kids to go through this course, uh, kids from the inner city, kids who couldn't care less, and you force them to go through this and to get a good grade and to maybe even sit through the three hours of Schindler's List that they that they that they that they show at the uh, school auditorium, I think that that actually causes a sort of uh, not just okay now we know about Hitler and, and it's and, resentment to Jews that's right resentment. So either way, you know, it, 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 like you're saying, I agree with you. First of all, it, it, they know it's so much in the past, and they contrast that. The other thing, I mean, I, I, listen, the ADL, which has changed dramatically from what it was fifteen years ago in ways that I don't really uh, agree with. Some things they still do very well. And they, and they put together a curriculum uh, about, you know, in response to anti-Semitism to be taught in high schools. They have intelligently de-emphasized the Holocaust. And instead, see, if I, if, I was, if I wanted to create a society that was more tolerant, that was more embracing of minorities, which is what we would all want, and it was less prejudiced against Blacks and Jews, and Asians, uh, what I would do is I have a course on, on civics, you know, about the Bill of Rights, about the roots of democracy, you know, and I, I would talk about all of that in the history, the real history of America, with all of its flaws and blemishes, but the real history of, of, of the ideas that animated the founding fathers and, uh, and the progression of the civil rights movement and why it is that America today is the most tolerant country on God's green earth. Why it is that, you know, Jews and Asians and other minorities have flourished in America. Why it is that even as it relates to racism against African-Americans, it is far superior to what it used to be and far superior to nearly everywhere else on earth. So, uh, you know, I would talk about civics. I would talk about American ideas if I was concerned about prejudice and bigotry in, in America. That's what I would do. And uh, I think those values, those semitism is like cancer. What happens? Right, some some an older guy goes to the doctor, gets diagnosed with cancer, and he says to the doctor, "But doctor, there must be something we can do." And the doctor prescribes, you know, around a chemo and radiation that he would never ever do for himself in that situation, because which we know from the data, doctors turn this stuff down more than anybody else. But then they know that the need to say you can do something is very compelling. So Jews get together and talk about cancer, anti-Semitism, the cancer of hate. And they, well, there must be something we can do. And we, and we come up with these, you know, the, the placebos, basically. And we say, oh, education is going to solve the problem. Uh, this is going to solve the problem. No, it won't solve the problem. People who want to hate will always hate. And, and the idea that somehow a course in high school is going to change things, yeah, it might civics, appreciation of civics and freedom of, of speech and assembly and religion and tolerance and all that stuff is very helpful. But I don't believe that, you know, 
force feeding Holocaust data, you know, to, to, to American kids is going to solve any problem. It will solve, you know. We get away from the Holocaust, the more difficult it is uh, to zero in on these, these minutiae details, because there's other things and just so many hours of the day that the teachers have to teach other things about the world and, and to, to allow good citizenship to happen. In terms of teaching civics and other things like that, again, you need to have, uh, even if you have the best textbooks, as I said before about the Holocaust, you have to have teachers that are invested in the ideal. I think what the young teachers that are getting the jobs now are in, in many ways influenced by uh, the zeitgeist, if you want to call it the woke culture, and that is part of it, 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 it's setting up the system in order to show the cracks and to, I, I want to say something. Well, to criticize them. So right, therefore, if I'm, a, if I'm a teacher who's teaching civics, I think the average teacher, young teacher who's teaching civics today is not uh, the old grand uh, dom who, who, who believes in the beauty of or the, 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 the incredible fusion of the three systems of government, but actually is going to show all the inconsistencies and how right. they need to change. No, I agree with you. And, and, then, and the problem with critical race theory, which is, you know, which I, I love how Democrats say that America is flawed from its inception, is systemically uh, uh, racist, and, 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 the, and the corrective is not judging people by the content of their character, as Martin Luther King called upon us to do, but judging people by the color of their skin and determining immediately who is a victim and who is a perpetrator. We, we know what it is. And, and, but again, what people don't appreciate enough is what an assault this is on, uh, 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 on the Jewish presence in America. Because the Jewish presence in America and the success in America is based on the idea that we believe that America is basically a meritocracy, that it is a basically tolerant country, where given opportunities, everyone's allowed to uh, excel in life. And this, and the narrative of the left today undermines the very foundational ideas of our presence in North America, the United States. It's, it's a very devastating uh, blow uh, to, to, our, to our standing here. And, and it's a deep threat. I'm, I'm hoping it's cyclical. Well, you know, time will tell. There is a backlash. Uh, the elections certainly seem to say that. But uh, who, who knows where it's headed. But in terms of Holocaust education, I, I think the most important thing about Holocaust is the following. We are called upon in the Torah to remember things, right? Zachor, right? There are six things you're supposed to remember. One of them is Amalek. Now, does it ever say remember so that? No. It just says remember. It doesn't say remember. You know, I guess it's implicit possibly, but it never says remember that. So that remember, and therefore, you know, you know, I know you quibble with me, maybe you know, it's I'm not with you, it's just wrong because, again, if you look in the Rambam, the Rambam says the reason to remember is in order to stir people to fight and to hate and to eliminate Amalek. So, okay, but I'll let me say, but that's all the Torah says. Okay, so again, I understand if you, but Here, here's what here's my uh, point, but, but the Rambam, again, you know, the Rambam is, 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 is it's not just I found some strange opinion. The reason to remember Al Tishkach is because again, you know, here I think you're on a little bit of shaky ground. Okay, so let me just make the, the, the other point, which is that after the war, what did we all say? We all said never again. Never again. Now, what the heck does never again mean? Never again what? So to the liberal Jew, never again, again meant 
never again be silent in the face of bigotry, because look what bigotry can lead to, right? That's what I think they meant. What did others in the Jewish community mean when they said never again? They meant never again allow the obscenity of Jewish homelessness to be repeated. Jews need power. Never again should we be vulnerable. Now, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with either of those two. The difficulty we have is that there are some who only embrace the first definition, which is, you know, the universal message. And there's been an attempt since the very beginning of Holocaust memory to de-Judaize the Holocaust memory. Look at the first production of Anne Frank on Broadway. Commentary Magazine did a whole article about 30, 40 years ago of describing the tensions in that production between the Jewish version of Anne Frank and the effort to deracinate it, right? And, and there is still that impulse. I mean, Simon Wiesenthal, with all the good he did, the terrible thing is that he made up the fiction of 11 million victims so that everyone would care because it wasn't just Jews. It's a complete fiction. Yeah. And, 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 and Jews aren't comfortable with particularism, even related to the Holocaust. But the point is, here's, here's what I really, that ultimately is that ultimately, and this is what the recent events in Poland have proven and elsewhere, is that nobody can be trusted to remember the Holocaust other than the Jewish people. Just like the Holocaust taught us that at the end of the day, no one can be trusted with the life of another Jew except a Jew. Uh, The only people who can be trusted with Holocaust memory are Jews. And we remember for a whole host of reasons. But I also believe that among all the reasons to remember, right, never again, a strong Israel, a compassionate society, being anti-racist, all those things which may, may in fact be true. Ultimately, I happen to believe that memory is an end in itself, is that memory edifies us, it elevates us. Memory is an end in itself, and it's a sacred obligation to remember. It's a sacred obligation to remember the six million for no other reason than to remember them. That's it. Just memory is important. We need to remember them. We need to remember what happened. And maybe there's, you know, wonderful benefits, collateral benefits from it. But ultimately, we're called upon simply to remember. Okay. And so that means our kids learning. Okay, so let, let, let me push back a little bit here. First of all, it's hard to remember something that you didn't experience. So the word remember is obviously not really correct. It's really right. about creating. Learn it, remember. It's really about, it's really about like the word Zohar, which is the, a, a, an idea of a male who is a creator. What we're doing is basically creating an idea something what's in our head, right? We can't remember what we, what we, we didn't experience. So what we're talking about is um, to, uh, in a way, make real and think about and be connected to something. That's what to be Zohar is. But, but I would say, you know, and, and, and this is something which maybe we get, you said people are going to be angry at you. I, maybe people will be angry at me, but I'm going to say, I think even for Jewish education, just like you said, we shouldn't traumatize uh, elementary school kids. I don't think we should even deal with, give it the emphasis it's getting in the high schools as well. And I speak as a child, as a Holocaust child. I speak as not a child who was born there, but as a brother who was born there, a sister who was born in the middle of the Holocaust, parents who escaped. So I think I have a right to say that I think there's just, it it doesn't work and we got to move beyond. I think that there, there's so, as, as, I go back to what I was saying before in terms of the amount of time we have uh, in anything. The Jewish education, uh, I, I believe, does not even, even need 
such super emphasis in this area at all. It's definitely one of it's a Horbin that that you can use at selected times to be able to press those buttons that you need to make something real. But I think the involvement in it, the amount of, 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 of time that's placed in it, I think is counterproductive. As you said before, there's so much beauty, there's so much to learn, there's so much to gain. Uh, it, it, and and it, we know that for many, uh, the, Pew, uh, the Pew Trust did a, uh, in terms of their poll, they found out that the Holocaust was more of a, a unifying aspect of Jews than religion was, right? right. I think, right? And, and that's something which I think needs... No, no, listen, all of that is... Listen, Ruth Wise wrote about this 20, 30 years ago, The New Republic, and she got, you know, and, and, she, was, and she was 100% right. So the money that the North American Jewish communities have invested in Holocaust museums would have been better spent on Jewish education. And one thing we know for sure, that if you spend your years in elementary school and high school in a good Jewish school studying Jewish texts and never mentioning the Holocaust, you will end up in your life knowing much more about the Holocaust than the kids who went to, you know, who, who went to Hebrew school and took three Holocaust courses in high school, right? The people who are steeped in Jewish learning and in Jewish living will end up knowing about the Holocaust. They will end up reading and knowing and, and listening, and they will learn about the Holocaust. You and I never took a Holocaust course. Right. You and I went to high school. We never did a Holocaust. Nobody mentioned the Holocaust when we were in high school. Nobody. Not not in secular uh, three hours in the afternoon and not in any of our shiur. Because the we Holocaust, came from homes that were still, we never mentioned. It we was, came we from homes mentioned. that were in the smoke and ashes of the Holocaust. Right. We, 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 nobody <laughs> talked about it. It wasn't <laughs> talked about once. Not once. And, um, you know, and. And somehow we both came out of that experience, uh, you know, pretty clear on, you know, on, on the value of knowing about the Holocaust. And I think all, it's a very valuable thing, but I, I believe it's an ethical obligation for Jews to know and remember what happened. Okay, I don't know if it makes them better. I think it does, but that's not the goal. The goal is simply to remember. The six million deserves our memory. They do. Right. It's a moral imperative to okay, remember. So let me push back again. When does it stop? When does it stop? Does it stop in the year 2050? Does it stop, right? Assuming Mashiach doesn't come, right? When there's nobody left who, who can really talk about what Varsha and what Slutsk was and what these cities were. It, does it, when does it end, right? It never ends. Okay, so what, what we need to remember Chelmenikis. Uh, Absolutely. As well, so what does that mean? What does that mean? It means to realize that we have that there's a history of blood and tears, and there's been Rabbana who have been slaughtered and massacred. But to to overemphasize something, to become completely no, no, no. I, listen, to go ahead and to know the Holocaust, and you know, in other words, to know about the Inquisition, but not to know about the Bibernel, to know about the Holocaust, and know and not know about Volozhin, to know about the Chilmanitsky pogroms, and not to know about uh, you know about the Jewish communities is, of course, an obscenity. Put it all together. That's my point. Put it all I, together there. 100%. Don't have the Holocaust jut out. Listen, I, 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 the most recent. Put them okay. all together, and, 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 and you could spend a little more time there. But you're right, Zohar. You need to know what it means of the world you came from. But, Listen, I want to tell you, to reduce the six million to only the manner of their demise is an insult. I agree. When I say so, I would, I would say, listen, I know I, I promised you know, I wouldn't talk about this, but of the seven days I'm in Poland on a Marshall living trip, six of them, we insist, 
that the first part of the day is on Jewish life before the war. We talk about Jewish life before the war. Otherwise, you're reducing six, you're erasing Eastern European Jewish culture. You're erasing what these people live for, right? And all you're doing is reducing to them to what happened to them instead of what they did. Right, they become and, passive objects of history rather than players in history. And 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 the great accomplishments of those cities for them to know what Lemberg was, what these cities were, what even cities like Osterovoz, cities that have not don't even have a Jew left in it, but there was a time that there was a stellar presence, a brilliant presence. As Gershon Shalom himself has pointed out, the amount of genius that was erupting in the end of the 18th century, throughout the sections of Eastern Europe, was incredible. And, to, and that, of course, was destroyed and decimated by... I'll tell you, one of my fantasies is to do a trip through Poland and Lithuania and to go and to use Nobel Prize winner lists as your map and itinerary through Eastern Poland. To go to a place like Zhezhov, Right, a small, you know, relatively small place that people haven't heard of, and talk about the Nobel Prizes, right? Won by the people uh, who were born there or whose parents and grandparents were born there. To trace Jewish genius back to its real roots, and and, and to and to, exp- and, and to use that as a jump-off point to talk about the levels of education and intellectual achievement in all areas of Jewish life, in all areas of universe, of, you know, of living in general. That were accomplished in Poland and, and, and other in Lithuania and even in Hungary. I mean, I wouldn't include Romania in that, but in uh, in, in, in Lithuania, you know, the, I mean, remarkable places of Jewish learning. And um, but it, that's not done. You're right. Holocaust education reduces the six million to what happened to them instead of expanding the definition of Zahar to remembering what these incredible people. And, and, and look, we've talked about it in the past that. There's so many other fa- there's so many factors. One of them, of course, was the nascent burgeoning Israeli society that also wanted to turn their back not just on the victims but also on that glory of European life because it stood in contrast. Look, to- like look, yes. The new- yes. So, and therefore, and since so much power was being uh, uh, shifted to Israel, and Israel in many ways, but, but again, it, that has changed. What you're describing is the 50s and the 60s. Right, right. But it changed dramatically. It's hard. It's it, Once they did their work in terms of, you know, it's about the victims and, and Israel becomes the Mokham Miflat, then the, the rediscovering what the glories of European Jewish life was, it's a very difficult thing to do. And, um, and, and I think that's also part of the handicap that maybe we can't really overcome. So, you know, I, I spoke about it in a different uh, forum Talk about how, what's the hook? What's the hook? Um, clearly, again, as we move in this, this incredibly uh, advanced technological world, what could get uh, a, a modern young Jewish fellow interested in finding about uh, about the um, uh, you know the the makeup of the Vad Arbarotzis or yeah. uh, the uh, Yiddish Gemenda? Right? It's so weird, right? It's so strange to them. So here, here's what I believe. Um, you love what you, to find out about something you love about. And of course, we as yeshiva people are able to do that. Now, if you're going to tell me that the Pnei Yeshua was the Rav in Metz, well, you love the Pnei Yeshua, don't you? Okay, now you can find out some more. He was also Rav in Tinker Chins. 
<laughs> right. Or, or let's say we talk about Rav Yenis and Ivishitz and Rav Yaakov Enden. Okay. So you, 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 if you read a, their Torah and you are interested in it, so you automatically expand beyond that. You become just, it, it's almost the same sort of obsession that occurs whether you're a Trekkie or a sports fan. Right. <laughs> Once, what, you know, I love baseball. You know, I want to know about how Mickey Mantle grew up in the South and who, where he played uh, right. AAA ball. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a Trekkie. I want to know about how Shatner uh, grew up in Montreal and all the stage plays that he did before. Right. right. And so in the same way, I think when you appreciate the product, the genius that European jury produced, and, and, and again, it's in the rabbinic scholarly world, there's a certain amount of poetry in other parts, but I think if you if you can if you can appreciate, and this is really I, I'm really zeroing in on a very small center of the population because how many people are going to be learning Chassidism this evening? Uh, what, what you're saying is absolutely correct. The only other group of Jews that might have the same kind of you know draw to learn about it would be those involved in Yiddish literature, which is even a smaller slice of the Jewish demographic. Right. But, but without that, it's, I'm telling you, it's a lost cause. Yeah. It's, it's, it can't happen. It, well, it, here's it, what I would argue. In other words, let's say you take a group of kids, right, to, uh, to Warsaw. Spend three days in Warsaw. And instead of going, instead of talking only about meal 18 and Umshak Palats, which of course you got to do, and instead of just going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, to, to the orphanage or whatever. Um, you spend time talking about, you know, you know what the biggest hospital was in Warsaw before the war? It was the Jewish hospital of, of Warsaw. And there were, in fact, uh, 11 Jewish hospitals in all of Poland. And instead of talking about you know, whatever the deportations, you talk about the 11, or I'm sorry, what's the number? Uh, my, my, it was nine daily Jewish newspapers in Warsaw before the war. And the two largest were not written in Yiddish, but in Polish. And you talk about what that means. And you talk about the 40% of the lawyers in Warsaw that were Jewish. You talk about, you know, the great accomplishments of the Rabbanim in Warsaw. You talk about Rabbi Maslow's and other, I mean, unbelievable. You spend a day, a real day in Gensha Cemetery, going through the graves and talking about the people's lives. And not just the Rabbanim, you know, the Chem de Shlema or, or the Nitziv, but you talk about you know the actors and the actresses and the who who are there. You talk about you know every you talk about everything, and and you talk about the extraordinary flourishing of Jewish life before the war. That's what should be done. That's more important than going to Treblinka. It is. That's much more important. You want to instill a kid with the pride in their heritage. You show them their heritage, not the destruction of their heritage. Look, I, I think you know you're giving me another idea, which I think can also be dealt with, which is the anomaly of a country, which I don't think we're ever going to see again, where you, for example, you know, you would have a city like Kunz, which was the city where uh, the Chalkas the Yoyov was. So you have a city that's 60% Jews, 70% Jews. It's, it was an industrial town. It had 30, 40% non-Jews. And I think that would, that would be an incredible sociological uh, discussion because it, it almost outside of Israel, there, it, 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 there's very few places where that's true. Right, right. And I think, just bear with me for a second. I think what you could do is speak to these kids and say, think about what that means, where you have a city, a, a modern functioning city, where so much of the population was Jewish. 
what did that mean? What did that mean for uh, the Jewish community? And, and, and you don't necessarily have to lay it on thick about how great that was, but just the puzzle. The puzzle is, hmm, does that, does, does, does that cause a dilution of Jewish values? Because they, they have to, you know, they're, they're not just the takers of a bigger society. They need to actually forge and form things. And unlike in Israel, where it's their country, they are just like in Ludge and other places where they were 25, 30% of, of, of a city that was one of the most important industrial places. I think that riddle of how that worked is itself something people could think about. Hmm, how could that work? Uh, this minority, uh, again, it could lead to why the anti-Semitism rose because of the positions that they held, but it could also, you could also talk about that dynamic. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, a, a dynamic that was never replicated in America, except perhaps in places, some places, I guess, in New York, uh, in Muncie and in, in Lakewood. But the idea of, you know, a, a Jewish majority in a, in a, in a country. Yeah, that's fascinating. How was it that, and I think that could be a question in a civics course, that could be a question in, in, in uh, 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 where you don't necessarily have to be a Lamden and to appreciate Ricky Vega to care about it. So I think there are, I think we've suggested here a number of possibilities. Right. And the other, the other thing is, I think not, but those who know these things, and those who know about Chavanitsky pogroms in the Holocaust and see the anti-Semitism today, they, they're, they're, they have a, a greater internal fortitude when it comes to this stuff, because they understand what we faced before and what, we've, uh, what we uh, survived and overcome. And, and, it, and it provides, you know, ironically, it's, you know, it's a hopeful thing because we're still here. We overcame. We did overcome. And we're still here. And that's a remarkable part of the story. The strength of survivors, the resilience of survivors. That's a remarkable part of the story. And, and, and to teach that kind of resilience and fortitude or the model of fortitude and resilience is also a very valuable lesson for Jewish kids who are confronted sometimes, you know, in, in, in startling ways by, by modern versions or, or current versions of anti-Semitism and, and understand that they're part of a long legacy of people who have had to face this. And you know what? We're still here. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.